Welcome to the Top Order Podcast Cricketing Hall of Fame time again. We are into the top 50, counting down numbers 50 to 46 on Baldy's Arbitrary Cricketing Hall of Fame. Recap of the rules. We're going to put six minutes or thereabouts on the clock for each of these cricketers. We're going to discuss some of their career highlights and statistics. We're going to challenge... Um, I guess the eye test on some of these players. We are going to cover a number of different eras in this episode as well, which personally for me was one of the things I I find the most challenging about this exercise is understanding how do we look at people that we've not seen a massive amount of footage of and judge them against people where we have. But Bordy, without further ado, let's get underway with this episode. Who is at number Five zero. Well, halfway there, boys, and plenty of controversy to come, but we'll start with a cricketer that we've all seen lots and lots and lots of in our lifetimes. Let's go to the West Indies and talk about one of their best ever fast bowlers. Let's talk about number 50 on the Top Order Podcast Test Cricket Men's Hall of Fame. It's Courtney Walsh, 132 Test veteran. He has 519 wickets and an average of 24.44. Strike rate under 60, 57.8. Three tenfers, 22 fifers, and an average above replacement player of 6.26, which puts him 22nd of all time in that category. Top 20 in fifers, uh, he is top 25 in tenfers, and he's about top 30 in average, and he's sixth all time, as I reckon it, in wickets taken. Courtney Walsh, uh, a veteran for the West Indies, and now coach of the West Indies women's team that we saw in here in New Zealand at the T20 World Cup as well, and a very likeable chap as far as coaching is concerned. Very well-respected coach. Let's put six minutes on the clock, boys. Boys, I, I think we should start with Binksy. I mean, I was we always sort of say no disrespect, but I think uh, you made a, a relatively disrespectful comment, Binksy, about the end of his career that maybe the keeper was standing up for the end. What what are your memories of that time? Because I actually had similar memories uh, and then sort of recapped that last night and had a bit of a look at, at different things. But I'd be interested to hear what you say maybe before I jump in. Yeah, well, look, I'm glad you threw me under the bus, even though you were um, also of the same opinion. But um, yeah, I guess that's the author in you, um, courting controversy. Um, look, I think, uh, yeah, look, my comments and, and my thought process were he was, he slowed down a hell of a lot. Um, and look, I, I'm not saying that, you know, fast bowlers aren't going to do that through the course of their career. But um, I guess my recollection was, um, I think a tour here to New Zealand, actually, with look relatively flat and slow wickets sometimes in New Zealand. Keeper stood up and he just looked a little bit impotent and and that was my kind of memory of did he go on a little bit too long um but you're gonna sort of actually come up with some statistics to back at the fact that that was a a bit of a myth i think well i i completely agreed because i remember being really annoyed at the time i I don't really know why but sort of everyone that was passing hadley i i kind of you know sort of felt a personal this this isn't fair that you know Richard Hadley's been such a great cricketer and now these people are passing him and it felt like with Courtney Walsh that you know it at times it felt like he was going on just to break that 500 barrier and all that kind of stuff but yeah when I dug into the numbers 1998 38 wickets at 23.5 1999 35 wickets at 24.4 2000 he took 66 wickets at 18.7 including I think a 10 for against England 2001, 27 wickets at 22.25. So, look, it's pretty hard to argue with with those stats at the end of his career. Yeah, I, I completely remember that tour you guys are talking about, and I remember thinking, 
that he was quite weary. And I thought back on it, maybe it's just because, you know, West Indians are quite relaxed and, well, maybe it was a bit of that, but I do remember him looking quite weary. But his numbers, like I said, I got that stat as well. Mm. Averaging 18 in that second to last year of his career is actually quite incredible. I have a question for you, uh, Baldy, and it's mainly around the bowlers we've just covered, so Broad and Rabada. Mm. What stats or what is it that puts Walsh ahead of those guys? I think Broad is going to end up with a very similar um, argument in, that I'm going to make here with Courtney Walsh. Is I don't think anyone other than maybe now Jimmy Anderson has bowled fast, and I use that term loosely because at the end of his career, Walsh was fast medium, as was Sean Pollock. But no one has bowled fast for so long a time at such a high level as Courtney Walsh. He bowled nonstop from pretty much, well, prior to 1984, before he made his test debut, all the way into 2001, and perhaps I think maybe even had one season of domestic cricket after that. But he bowled 12 months of the year. He played county cricket in England. He played first-class cricket in the West Indies, and he played test cricket. He did not stop bowling his entire career. And that was kind of his mantra, right? He said, well, my action is so economical. I can do it time and time again. I maintain my fitness by bowling. I don't go to the gym. I don't do any of these ancillary exercises. I bowl. And so my my standard for, for Courtney Walsh is that he had maintained that level of class. You talked about his last four years in his career. That tour to England in 2000, 34 wickets in five tests at an average of 12 and a, tr- a strike rate of 26. That was at, at 37 years of age. Mm. And he took a 13 for, I think, in that series. So in terms of peak longevity he was able to maintain an excellent standard for such a long period of time other bowlers have peaked higher than Courtney Walsh has but he's that kind of guy in the West Indies bowling attack alongside Courtney uh Kirtley Ambrose that was just able to maintain that such a high level for such a long period of time the the thing for me and touch upon that point he bowled 85,000 deliveries in first class cricket that's unbelievable that is insane from 1984 to 1990 I remember watching him play for Gloucestershire a hell of a lot and they had a very successful particularly white ball side Um, I remember Jack Russell you know up to the stumps and you know they dominated one day cricket in the latter part of his time there the other thing I think that the reason I actually think this guy you know does go down as one of the you know the greats and, and obviously we're talking about him in the top 50 is We've talked about this before when we've covered other West Indian fast bowlers. He was part of a quintet, or I don't even know what the word for, you know, six people is. Um, but, you know, there was Malcolm Marshall around at that time. There was Courtney, uh, Courtney Ambrose around at that time. There was Joel Garner. There was Patrick Patterson. There was a bunch of guys that shared round the wickets. If he'd have been in a just a partnership like a Broad and an Anderson or a you know, a Stain and a Pollock or, you know, a Donald and a Pollock, probably a better example, just how many more wickets might have he, he have had as well. So I think that that is another factor that comes into this for me in terms of how he managed that longevity to, you know, to carry on and end up with, you know, a record that didn't look like it was going to get broken really until until Anderson kind of, um, you know, motored past it. And, and I think, look, we've talked about how his pace dropped at the end of his career. I think if you go back and look at some of the, the footage, you can certainly find the the fast Courtney Walsh footage there. It's um, I remember, you know, I've talked about a few old videos that I used to watch. There was one called Bats, Balls and Bounces that another one that kind of came on repeat and it's it's got the uh, Robin Smith. typing that into Google, I reckon. <laughs> yeah. It's got the, the Robin Smith uh, battle against, uh, against the West Indies where, uh, you know, they peppered him with bounces. He n- never used to wear a grill and Courtney, Wa- it sort of ends with Courtney Walsh hitting him and breaking his jaw, I think. They don't re- didn't really discuss that in the, the video, but 
yeah, geez, and he was rapid. You know, that ball that hits his uh, Robin Robin Smith's chin just rears up off a length. He was yeah at his at his peak. He's just well, he's fast. so tall. He was yeah. so so tall, and his and his action was kind of unorthodox in a sense. But his delivery release position was so so high that he was able to extract all the bounce that he could, and that's why he could bowl for so long because he didn't need to be expressed to get to get that action. Uh, last set before we leave Courtney Walsh, most ducks, 43 in test cricket for Courtney Walsh and also most pa- second most pairs in the history of test cricket as well. So terrific. the first most pairs? I can't, I can't remember. It was Chris Martin, I believe. Uh, yeah. it, might, it, must, it, Mate, it might have been. He wasn't even a rabbit. He was a ferret. He went he, in he, after the rabbits, didn't he? Yeah, yeah he, no. was, he was not a great batter, but a terrific bowler, Courtney Walsh. Um, we're going to have, I think, some controversy oh, on, absolutely on, we are. on this next one. Absolutely. So let's put nine minutes on the clock. Um, <laughs> uh, six minutes for this chap's career and then three minutes to talk um, controversy. But who have we got at number 49? Well, we've got an Australian at number 49. Surprise, uh, surprise. Uh, well, we've got plenty of West Indians and a Kiwi coming up in the next episode. So just calm your farm there, Stuart. We'll get to you in a second. <laughs> It's Greg Chappell, 87 tests for Greg Chappell, 7,110 runs at an average of 53.86. That's the third highest average by an Australian batter in the history of tests. Highest score of 247 not out on his way to 24 test centuries and 31 half centuries. And his average above replacement player of that era is plus 12.7, which is good enough for 13th of all time. He also has 47 test wickets at an average of 40. So had he bowled more, he might have had a, a plus minus there of plus 13, but didn't get enough wickets to qualify in my view. Uh, but he had multiple series with multiple hundreds. He had sev- uh, multiple series averaging over over 80 or 90. I mean, that, the stat that jumps out off the page to me that's not in most of the archives is the super test stats from World Series cricket. Yeah. So five super tests against the West Indies attack. I think some of them were even in the West Indies. He averaged 69 against that West Indies bowling attack in that period. He made hundreds in his debut test, made 100 in his last test, as well as 100 in each innings as captain on debut as a captain. Uh, And in his final innings, he made 182 passing both 7,000 test runs and Bradman in the same innings for most runs by an Australian at that point by the time he retired. So, look, there are plenty of stats to talk about in terms of Greg Chappell. I've got my view on him, but I'm interested to see what you guys think of the controversial, controversial Australian test cricketer. Yeah, look, before we probably come on to the, the controversy, um, a little bit before all of our era, I think, in terms of when we were watching, um, I, I think what stands out for me, you mentioned those World Series cricket stats, and I got into a massive YouTube um, rabbit hole on that when there was a, a, a essentially a, uh, a, it wasn't a documentary, but it was a Kerry Packer uh, miniseries that oh, was yeah. on Netflix, I think, which yep. sort of documented World Series cricket. Um, and obviously he was such a big, um, a big component of that. Um, we talk about that sort of top score, 247, his top test score, I think 246 was his top score in World Series cricket. So um, yeah, pr- pretty, uh, pretty impressive from that perspective. So I remember kind of watching that and then starting to watch how good a player he was like as a batter, as a technician. And I think no, you know, no surprise he went on to very, very good coaching success, particularly with an Indian side where he got a lot of respect from a batting group that was unrivaled at that particular point as well. And I know a lot of them, um, probably with the exception of Roel Dravid, uh, would speak really, really highly of him. He certainly had, a, I think, a run-in with him and Ganguly as, as well. Yep. Um, but I think who hasn't? Um, but um, but we, we've got to address the elephant in the room, and that is the fact that he was the architect, I think, of the underarm incident in 1971, was it? 81. 
Was it 81? Yeah. Okay. 81, so again, Australia versus New Zealand. B- before most of our time, I was two years old watching that, throwing stuff at the TV, I think. <laughs> um, but yeah, guys, how does that sort of sit with you as Kiwis? Because that is such an emotive thing in New Zealand cricketing history, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's a, uh, a one-day game. But yeah, I, I don't know. I guess I, I'm probably more interested in hearing about how he was thought of in Australia, Baldy, because, yeah, it's fair to say his his reputation, I guess, from that incident, he's not held in the highest regard here in New Zealand. And, um, you know, on general terms, I think certainly uh, he's regarded as a, an elite cricketer. But I'd be interested to know like, where he was when you were growing up, when people talked about Greg Chappell, was, were they talking about him as the best since Bradman in terms of batting? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's how everyone talked about Greg Chappell until Ricky Ponting really came along and took that mantle off him. You know, if you have a look at that average 53.8, 24 test hundreds, over 7,000 test runs, he broke Bradman's record mm. and that record stood for a long time in Australia until well into the 1980s. So he was the best since Bradman. Look, the underarm thing, it had to come up at some point, right? It's not strictly part of his test legacy, but significant enough that it is detrimental to his legacy, his overall legacy as a player in the pantheon of cricket greatness, right? Big marks down for comparison. I mean, let's look at the sum of the, the, the players in our list who've averaged less as a batter but will appear above him in that list. It, it does bring down his overall legacy as a cricketer because not was not only was he involved in the incident, but he was the captain in that particular game. And his brother on, com- on commentary famously said, no, Greg, no, don't do it. Lots of Australians, Rod Marsh was against it. He thought that that was the way to win the cricket game. And look, you know, as it turns out, it was a no ball anyway, and New Zealand probably should have had another another ball to win the game. So, look, unfortunately, it is one of those incidents that will live long, a lot longer in the memory of Australian and New Zealand cricket fans than other incidents that may have may have been more detrimental to the game. So it's unfortunate, but it is going to impact his legacy as a test player. But other than that, he had a, a stirring part in bringing Australia together under World Series cricket and driving that forward. He was a tremendous captain for Australia up until that um, 1981 incident and maybe a little bit afterwards. But yeah, a tremendous cricketer in my view. Yeah, well, I was actually going to ask that question a bit differently. I said, you know, you've used discretion with a, a few players in the list so far. Were you tempted to drop Chapel 40 spots for being a crap bloke? That's what I was going to ask. But anyway, we'll move on. We'll, we'll finish with a positive. He's dropped He's dropped some spots, not 40. My, um, one interesting thing I found, he's got great numbers, great average, scored a lot of runs, but he never scored a 1,000 runs in a, in a calendar year, which you see that happening so often this year. I guess it's more of a way of comparing how much cricket is played these days at uh, the test level. But, um, yeah, great great player. Back to you. If we have time, I, I want to dive into a little bit about how, um, and I suppose it comes up a bit more with players, certainly from the earlier eras. Chapel wasn't, you know, right back in the day. But he only played four tests in Asia. How do, how do you kind of reconcile, I mean, did that, did that come into your consideration? Because... Out of his 87 matches, 35 of them were against England, and it's such a big disparity compared to, yeah, it's a big part of being a good cricketer now is to be able to perform in all different parts of the world. Uh, and Bordy, correct me if I'm wrong, he opted out of a lot of overseas tours, particularly late in his career, didn't he? He, he just said he didn't want to play, and he, he only played at home, I think, for the last two or three years of his career. Yeah, that's entirely possible. I mean... Of the series that I looked at, and I looked sort of series by series, a lot of his peak series were in Australia. But I just keep coming back to the fact that those super tests against the West Indies, that now 
Asia in Asia, batting in Asia is the pinnacle of your achievement. Then it was to play the West Indies in Australia and in the West Indies. And in those five super tests against the best, probably the best four bowling fast bowlers ever assembled on the same field at the same time, he averaged 69 against those. And that's my benchmark, I think, for that era. Yeah, and look, to be fair, he did score a double hundred in one of those four tests that he played against uh, <laughs> yeah, in, in India. Go. So, look, he's, he was probably pretty good there. I just thought it was an interesting uh, yeah. comparison when you look around the world. Nice angle. And I know we didn't look at it, but the one-day stats he had as well, average 40, which back in that that you know those days, I think that would have been an absolute benchmark for a, an, an ODI player. Oh, but I, I can't wait to get to the, the one-day Hall of Fame and have a look at yeah. some, of those, some of those comparisons. Well, the timer has gone off on Greg Chappell, so we didn't probably get into the underarm as much as we would have liked to. But anyway. Um, <laughs> but on the plus side, we're all still mates, so that's well, always a good outcome. Well, you be the judge of that. <laughs> anyway, um, let's move on and, and have a chat about who makes number 48, I think, on our list, Baldy. So we go back to the West Indies again, and we're going to back uh, a generation and a half uh, to Clyde Walcott, one of the three Ws. Clyde Walcott played 44 tests for the Caribbean nations, averaging 56.68, 3,798 runs in his career, a higher score of 220, and 15 test centuries in just 44 tests. So it doesn't take much mass to work out that that's a century almost every three test matches. Uh, his rate of hundreds, so he had 20 hundreds per 100 innings, that's third all time. Uh, 50s rate is 10th all time in his average above replacement player, plus 13.7 for players of his era which is good enough for 10th all time and that batting average of 56.68 is good enough for 12th all time amongst all cricketers that qualify for our test hall of fame one of the three w's of course with sir frank worrell and also everton weeks clyde walcott let's get into it well, given you just uh, name-dropped one of them, why don't you tell us who's actually at 49 as well? Well, at 47, 47, at 47 we have Sir Everton Weeks, so one of, the other, uh, one of the other three Ws. He played 48 tests for the West Indies, slightly more tests, 4,455 runs at 58.61, so that's seventh all-time. Uh, 1,500s for him as well, uh, 1,650s, and an average above replacement player of plus 15.7, which is good enough for seventh all-time. Everton Weeks' uh, stats around uh, rates of hundreds is fifth all-time. He's top six in 50s per 100 innings. It's just These two guys were just two incredible cricketers that just happened to come from a small island, at the same time, they were all born within 18 months of each other, within six miles of each other, and came along to dominate Caribbean cricket at a time where Caribbean cricket really needed some strength in their batting. Um, they had they had Headley for a little while, but but these three really brought um, different things to the West Indies side, actually. Frank Worrell and his captaincy, uh, Clyde Walcott, we want to talk about players that could translate to the T20 era. You want to have a look at some of the, the hidden YouTube footage of Clyde Walcott. He could really hit a ball. Close stance. So from an eye test point of view, you started with a really close stance, back foot kind of behind the front foot, but a very, very strong, powerfully built man in the upper body, and he could hit the cricket ball a long, long way and was kind of described as a Viv Richards before Viv Richards came along. So we want to talk about power batters. We think Hayden, we think Richards. We should also be thinking about Clyde Walcott, a man who could hit the ball as, as well as anyone in that era. The other thing I'll add, this guy was a precursor to Adam Gilchrist and... Um, Kumar Sankakara, he kept wicket in his first uh, first part of his test career. Yeah, he did. Um, 11 stumpings, you know, that would be um, <laughs> world record for uh, for a lot of uh, a lot of test sides. Now you don't see too many stumpings in, in world cricket. So 
Uh, also, you know, we talk about sort of Gilchrist averaging 50 as a keeper batsman. This guy, in, you know, his first uh, first third of his test career um, kept wicket until a back injury curtailed that, I think. And then, yeah, he took a few wickets as well and and, and, and filled it in the grabbers. So Yeah, it did it all. Yeah. Very tall for a wicket keeper as well. He's, a, I think, well over six foot uh, from what I can gather, Walcott. So, yeah. Huge very, man. Very, huge, very huge man. Uh, look. He was he was instrumental. The three Ws were instrumental in the development of West Indies cricket over a long period of time. But I mean, he he scored 160 not out, 168 not out, I should say, actually in West Indies' first win in England uh, for the first time. So he was instrumental in, in groundbreaking in, in that respect. I mean, you have a look at his peak series. He had 1100s in four series at his peak. So from 1951 to to 1955, they only played four Test series, but he scored 1100s in that four Test series. He scored 400s in four consecutive tests um, and in 1955 Australia in the West Indies he scored 827 runs in a series at 82.7 high score 155 500s and 250s in that series you want to talk about peak Clyde Walcott had an absolute peak in 1955 that, that 53 to 57 he was averaging well over 80 yeah uh, he must have been you'd look at all of these guys weeks as well was averaging 50 away and 70 at home mm-hmm. imagine if these guys played 100 tests mm. They would have scored a ton of runs. Yeah, it's 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 really it's unbelievable how good these guys were with small bats. I look at Weeks and and, and Clyde Walker in particular from this era, and I had a look at their batting, and the the damage that they would do now in T Twenty cricket for the West Indies. I mean, these guys are fifty to sixty years ahead of Andre Russell and Kyron Pollard and Chris Gale. They're the kind of players we see in this modern era that should be looking back to their forefathers in terms of these three W's and 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 we should be thinking about that's the kind of impact they could have on on modern cricket. Um, just in terms of Everton Weeks, there's there's some YouTube featuring Everton Weeks, in fact the three W's all together. And the first shot you see of Everton Weeks is him playing a late cut and it's just so wonderfully played. I think it was against Statham or Truman in an England game. It was just so wonderfully deft. I had to lie, have a lie down afterwards. It was just it was just incredible. His footwork and his hand speed, Everton Weeks, was just just perfectly still, beautiful stance, nerdled Statham and Truman around the corner if he needed to, and then he decided he was going to have a go, I think, and just belted them everywhere. Um, and those guys were, were, were genuine fast bowlers. So... Um, just one more thing on in Everton weeks, 1500s and 1650s. So he got on with it. When he got to 50, he got to 100 almost time and time again. But in terms of the overall impact on, on West Indies cricket, West Indies owes a lot of their success and a lot of their popularity to cricket, to Walcott Weeks and and um, and Frank and Sir Frank Worrell as well. All of them sirs, actually. Yeah. Can I ask a question? You might not have the stats to this, but kind of going through this we're getting into the business end so we're clearly going to see some good stats mm. but when we look at this era and we, you know we'll come on and talk about another another person in this era as well very shortly the conversion rates of these guys are absolutely insane when you mm. compare them to t- some of the modern players you know we're talking about Walcott 1500s 1450s Everton Wicks 1500s 1950s I won't do spoilers but the next person we'll talk about is 2200s 2450s was that a trend of that era? You know, I'm asking you maybe to do statistics you've not considered, but I've seen the spreadsheet, so it should be on there. <laughs> I, I don't know. There are there are very. I do have players with ratios above one, and there are very very few. I think in that era, batters tended to get in and tended to bat for a long period of time because they had such wonderful powers of concentration. And let's be fair, 
I think the standard of fielding in some of those eras wasn't as sharp as, as it is in the modern era. So I think when batters tended to get on top of the fielding, there wasn't a lot of effort put in in stopping the ball that was going to the boundary. So kind of if you got in, you could cash in, if that makes any sense, because the fielding wasn't kind of up at that 100% level all the time. But having said that, there were some pretty terrific bowlers going around in that era as well. And you have a look at the average above replacement players, and that tells you that these guys are sort of top 10, top 7 all time. But yeah, it, yeah I think it's that, a quirk of that era, I think. that That's interesting, the average above replacement, because I know you've done a lot of work around uh, actually the eras. Because, you know, when I think about playing in those eras, with it's at a time when... I expect that the pitches are worse. They're uncovered, and to you know, and at various were, yep. points, yep. and and no but, helmets. But some of these averages, when you look back at those eras, they're actually way higher mm-hmm. than the current players. So where where does that stand now? Do, do the do the best batters in that era? actually have a higher average than than batters of today? Yeah, in the 1950s, it's interesting because the the batting average went up in the 50s and then it went way back down again in the 60s. So Mm. I think there was a confluence of a couple of things. One, we played a lot of test cricket. We tried to play as much cricket as we could after the war. Um, There was the introduction of new new sides into test cricket or the re-emergence of sides in test cricket that weren't tremendously powerful. Um, So you had the traditional Australia and England and then you had the West Indies emerging, but you also had India making their way into to test cricket early doors you had Pakistan making their way into test cricket and New Zealand also finding their way in terms of trying to find their first kind of wins and, and establishing their own legacies so there were opportunities to play against weaker sides that were over rates um, more overs in a yes day absolutely there absolutely over rates were much much better um, and in general people got around the field a lot quicker again because there wasn't a lot of running around after <laughs> the cricket ball there was kind of a lot of picking it up from the fence um, and that is one of the criticisms that's leveled against batters from that era is that the standards of fielding and accusations leveled at the standard of bowling I don't agree but the standards of fielding and catching weren't as high but there were some tremendously athletic cricketers in that era it's just that they weren't all professional a lot of them were amateur players or had to work part-time jobs tours went for a long time so players were injured and had to play a lot of cricket so there's all sorts of mitigating factors involved yeah you only got a couple of pairs of flannels they were made of wool if you got gra- <laughs> no seriously you got grass stains on them you, you know you couldn't get them out so you used to see the old harbour bridge come out because you didn't want to get grass stains on your on your whites it was genuine i reckon 100 <laughs> percent. there you go it's true right where are we going next Baldy? right let's go back to england we'll go back to uh, sort of pre-war post-war era and we'll have a look at lynn hutton for England, 79 tests for Len Hutton, 6,971. That jumps off the page. He had 7,000 runs, Len Hutton, um, across 138 innings. At an average, again, 56.67, higher score of 364. Oh, that's just one of his 1900s and 3350s. His AARP, average above replacement player, plus 9.27, so that's top 30 all time. Uh, he has a few test wickets, but he has 173 first-class wickets as well at an average of uh, 29.5 in first-class that's to go with just a lazy 40,140 first class runs at an average of 55 in first class cricket, 129 first class hundreds, 177 first class 50s. Man, this guy cashed in. Uh, a couple of peak series for you, lads. Uh, average 118 against Australia in 1938, made 473 runs in four bats. Uh, West Indies 53 4, average 96, made 677 runs in a, in a five test series, including 200s. And against Australia in 50-51, made 500 runs in a five-test series and an average of 88. So uh, a prolific, prolific batter. 
Uh, one stat to open the open the batting because he did open the batting. Openers with four thousand plus runs, second in all time in averages of opening bats, uh, marginally above Jack Hobbs and just behind Herb Sutcliffe. Who we'll get to both of those later on, and I have a little a story for you later on, but we'll get into them. I feel like that's a lot of tests for someone in this era. Mm, I had do, the same thought. Do, 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 is there a reason for that? I don't know. He, he he played for a long, long period of time. He played before and after the war. Um, obviously, war intervened, but you know he became captain of England, first professional captain to captain England full time, which was a huge deal in England in the 1950s. So a really important figure in the history of English cricket from a professional point of view. Uh, Wally Hammond turned amateur in 1938 and was able to captain England. But Len Hutton was the first cricketer that they full-time elected to captain England as a professional, which is a huge deal, uh, a huge, huge deal. It doesn't feel like that would be a thing now, but in 1950s, that was a, a massive deal uh, for a professional to, to captain England. Banksy, where, where does he stand for you? Because, I, yeah, I, I know, you know, like, you know, reading old, talked about all these old videos and reading reading books, cricket history books. He was definitely someone that always came up. Uh, he was someone I knew of from a young age, but obviously didn't know a huge amount about. Yeah, look, I, I guess relatively close to, look, my my cricket in upbringing because he's from Yorkshire. Uh, my family is all from Yorkshire. My, my grandfather used to talk about him all the time, born not too far away from, from where my, my grandfather was born. He was an opening batsman playing for Yorkshire schoolboys at the time that, you know, um, Selene was, or not Selene at that time, was playing test cricket. To, to Raj's point, debuted in 1937 and played his last game, I think, in 1955 or something like that. Yep. And, and that's one of the things that amazes me with this era is how many of these guys went off and, you know, did their bit for the war effort um, for four or five years and then were actually able to... Um, come back and play test cricket you think now of someone taking three four years out of the game and then having a comeback at that sort of age it's almost unheard of that you know you would be able to do that from a physical perspective and, and catch up to the way the game's evolved over that what is a pretty lengthy period of time in, in a career so that was one of the things that really jumped out as me was just like how long his test career was even though there was you know that four or five years of the second world war in the middle of it and, and let's just jump onto that quickly because he was actually injured during the war he wasn't injured in battle. In a, yeah, he broke his arm, I think. You know. He broke his arm in a training accident in a gymnasium. He was a physical instructor, but he had to have multiple arm surgeries. One of them was to graft bone from his leg into his wrist, and his left arm ended two inches shorter than his right arm. So for the for the for the remainder of his career, so forty six through fifty five, he batted with a left arm two inches shorter than his right arm. And I'm just having a look at his stats here: one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight of those years after the war, he averaged fifty or more in a calendar year. Mm. Just an incredible comeback from a pretty horrific sounding injury. He had multiple surgeries to try and correct that. Some of them obviously weren't successful, um, but yeah, just an incredible cricketer. And obviously that 364, that was a record at that time when that happened. I, I imagine that was a, a huge deal. I mean, can you run us through a little bit about that innings, Baldy? Uh, I don't know a lot about it other than it sort of broke Bradman's record and it set up 364, which is the world record for a long, long time until Gary Sobers came along and scored that 365 and, and broke it for the West Indies. But, you know, he was the kind of guy who could get in and get Big hundreds. I mean, we have a look at those key series. That that was a 1938 tour to Australia. Uh, no, Australia in England in 38. It, it was at the it was at the Oval, and I, and I think there was some criticism at the time that it compared to the Bradman 334, the the strike rate wasn't great. Mm. But 
again, we've got to look at the history of the game. This was a timeless test match, so it didn't strike rate didn't matter. It was, you know, occupation of the crease and, um, you know, grinding your opposition, you know, into the dirt a little bit. And we talked about the fielding standards. So there was some criticism of that, but counted by the fact that he had long enough to bat and his captain at the time said, you know, go out and occupy the crease for as long as you can. And he certainly bloody did it. And, and it sounds like from, you know, everything I read and, and heard about Hutton that, his technique was has always been described every time I've heard it as as near perfect. Yep. That you know, no matter what Len Hutton did, it was out of the textbook. So yeah, you can imagine, you know, a three sixty four of of nearly flawless batting. It's potentially a little bit different than Bradman because Bradman had his own little, uh, you know, had his own technique in, in ways that he he went about things. Yeah, I think you can certainly see where Boycott got his defence first and and excellent technique from. It was from a guy like Len Hutton, Yorkshireman, open the batting, defence first, sound technique, score run second, having worn down the bowlers. So I think there's a direct lineage through that, that history of Yorkshire cricket of opening batters with excellent technique, and it all really starts with this guy. Well, guys, that's the end of this episode of the Top Order Podcast Hall of Fame. We're well into the 50s, counting down um, 50 to 46 now um, on this episode. We will be back in your feed very shortly with the next instalment as we get into the real business end. So um, it, those of you that remember the UK charts, the top 40, we're, we're not too far away from that countdown in our next episode. And I'll tell you what, it's going to be a humdinger because we're going to group um, three of the big four or five or whatever you want to call them um, in current test cricketing batting parlance, as well as someone that makes lippy salivate on the next episode of the Top Order Podcast Hall of Fame. Stay tuned. 